0: Yep, so Luke 4, 31 to 44, if you want to turn with me. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Of God. Thanks, Laura. Good morning. How are you all? Good. I mean it. How are you? Um. How are you? I want you to like think about that for a minute. Um. I know it's a question you probably hear every day. Oh, how are you? I'm fine. Um, we're studying in Luke's Gospel and there's a question that we're trying to answer and the answer to that question is really the, the hope or the answer for all of your situations. Just looking out at you, I know you guys, most of you, um, I don't know all of your situations and problems, but I know you have a lot. Um, so the answer to this question is the answer that we're after. And the question is simply, who is Jesus? Like, who really is Jesus? The answer to that question changes everything for us. Um, it's, it's, the, it's our kind of top answer for this, um, for this series. Our, our goal um, every single week is to just gaze upon Jesus, um, look at him, see who he is. He's, he's like a diamond at times, isn't he? He's like multifaceted in his beauty. Like He's infinitely wonderful, um, truly unknowable, uh, yet to know him more and more and deeper and deeper—it's our, our very goal. So, um, last week Jesus he entered the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and we read he he preached on a passage uh, from Isaiah 61. That text that it looks forward, it, it foretells this promised Messiah who would be sent by God to save God's people. Um, I'm going to read it one more time. I think it's on the screen as well. Is what the Messiah would do. This is the Messiah speaking. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what the Messiah would come and do. Jesus says, That text is about me. I fulfill that. I'm the Messiah. Um, And we see the Messiah, he'd come and preach. That's what he would come and do. That's his, his purpose. He'd come and proclaim good news uh, and liberty and sight and favor and uh, liberty and, and freedom. And he'd come and preach those things. And another way to look at that is he's coming to undo all the effects of sin in this world, he's coming to renew this earth. Um, if you go all the way to Revelation 21, you see that that's what happens in Revelation 21 is the the outcoming of the Messiah. It's the, it's the outcome of all of his work. Um, I'm going to read it. I think it's on the screen as well. Revelation 21, Jesus gives his, his boy John this picture, this, this foresight of um, the new heaven and the new earth after Jesus returns to earth a second time. This is what he saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, there's no sea anymore, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is like the most beautiful, most spectacular moment in history he's describing here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, this is God's throne, saying, "'Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man.'" He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. So stop there a minute. What's, what is that, what's He describing there? What, is he, what does He sound like? He's describing Eden. He's describing the Garden of Eden, which was meant to be a dwelling place for God and man a place where God and man would would dwell together. Eden was meant to be a temple. It was meant to be a kingdom, the realm of God the king, and he would dwell and be in union with his vice regents, man and woman. We all know the story. Genesis 3 happens. It all falls apart. Adam and Eve rebel against God. Sin enters the world. And what does God have to do? He sends them away. He, He expels them from his kingdom. He expels them from his realm, from his presence. And why does he do that? Because he hates them? No, the opposite. He, 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 it's actually a compassionate act by God because he is holy, completely holy, and unholy people cannot be in God's presence. So he actually compassionately and mercifully sends them away. He says, in your sins, you who are unholy cannot be near a white holy God and, and live to tell about it. So he sadly sends them away, delivered into the realm of darkness, but he promises to send a deliverer, someone who would come and seek them out and save them. This deliverer, this savior, this messiah would would come and save them. He'd come and actually undo the effects of sin. He'd make it all right again. So that's Genesis 3, Genesis 1 to 3. Fast forward to this text in Revelation 21, and that's what you see happen. It's the outcome of the Messiah's work. He's, he's, he's renewing the earth. He, he's undoing all the wrong things. He's restoring it back to its original intention to be a dwelling place for God and man together. This would be a place where his people are in his presence again. They enjoy each other. There's no more separation. There's no more exile. In verse 4, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. And here's why. He says, for the former things have passed away. He says, those things will be things of the past. This is what the Messiah would come and do. He, he'd, he'd come for the renewal of the earth. He'll, he'll do away with poverty. There's good news for the, the poor now. He, he does away with, with blindness. They have sight now. He does away with oppression and debts and There's no more mourning, no more crying, all pain. Those things are former things. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. He's renewing the earth. That's what the Messiah would come and do. But how does he do that? He does that by dealing with the the root of their problem, which Genesis 3 tells us is sin. Like sin is the reason for all the brokenness. It's the reason for all the the blindness and, and sickness and tears. And that Isaiah 61 text that Jesus references says that the, first, the Messiah's first line of attack, if you put it that way, is preaching. And that's what you see Jesus doing all through the region. Isn't he? He's going around, he's, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's proclaiming good news. Look at chapter 4, verse 43, the end of the text that we're studying today. And you see Jesus, he clearly reiterates that this is his purpose. He says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's from Jesus' mouth. I was sent from where? Luke 1 tells us. He's sent from heaven, sent by God for this purpose. What's the purpose? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He's like, that's why I was sent. He's coming to announce the arrival, the, the breaking in of the kingdom of God here on earth. That kingdom proclamation, it's a major theme. In Luke's Gospel and Matthew and Mark, so if it's a if this Jesus says, "My purpose is to come and preach and proclaim and announce the good news of the kingdom of God," it's probably pretty important that we understand what he means by that. What does he mean when he speaks of the kingdom of God? To help us understand, it's helpful to understand what he means by that that word "good news," or 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 it's the word "gospel." That actually that that entire phrase to preach the good news, it's one word in the Greek. It's this word that we have evangelized. It means to proclaim, to announce, to preach the good news. And that word good news or gospel for us, we use it in three different ways in, in like New Testament studies. First kind of way you see it being used is to describe like a genre of literature. That's why we're studying the gospel of Luke. And that genre of literature it gives us this biographical picture, this biography of Jesus and the work of Christ. The second and probably most frequent way that we use that word gospel is to talk about the person and the work that Jesus did. So we we use that a lot. We talk about being a gospel-shaped community of people. That's our mission statement, isn't it? It just means we are shaped by who Jesus was and what Jesus did for us on the cross. So the cross is the the center of the gospel. What he did for the the pain, for the penalty of our sins, that shapes us in every single way. That's one way to use the, the word gospel. The third and probably earliest way to use the gospel is the way Jesus uses it here, though. The gospel of Jesus has to do with the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' He's always announcing the kingdom of God, the arrival of the kingdom of God. And, and Matthew says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Mark's gospel he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the, ki- the gospel has to do with the, the kingdom of God. He's announcing its arrival. I promise you I'm gonna to get to our text today. This is important though. Have you ever been puzzled by that? Jesus coming and announcing the, the, the arrival of the kingdom of God. It's puzzling because of that liturgy that we read, because when you read the Old Testament, it talks about the kingdom of God and how God omnipotently reigns over his kingdom of, of creation. You see that all through the New Testament. He, he, he omnipotently reigns over creation. He has from the very moment he created it, and he always will forever and ever. His sovereignty is from everlasting to everlasting. There's never a, a time when, when God wasn't, cre- wasn't king. There never will be a time when he ceases to reign. There's never anyone over God as a, another king. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's what you read in the Psalms. So what does Jesus mean when he's announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God? What's new about this kingdom that Jesus must preach? We've already, we've already said it, the risk of repeating myself, it's, it's, it has to do with Genesis 1-3, to that, that Eden was created to be this perfect dwelling place for you and for God. It's this dominion of, of God the King and His vice regents, humanity, but because Adam and Eve rebelled, sin entered the world, brokenness... Humanity is expelled from God's presence. We now live in this realm of darkness, this realm of evil, and we know that. Just look around. It's our experience, is darkness. But God lovingly promised to send a deliverer to seek and save his lost children. His promise was to send a king to earth to dispel the powers of evil, to dispel the darkness, and to reestablish God's kingdom here on earth. And you see the thread of that promise all through the Bible. In Genesis 49, you get a clear picture of it. It's on the screen. It says, Jacob's blessing to his sons. Here's the, listen to this blessing. Actually, it's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Here's the blessing that Jacob gives to his son Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So it sounds like someone's being worshiped here. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Sounds powerful. Sounds like someone who has a lot of power. And verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Sounds like someone's a king. Sounds like this powerful king being worshipped. See that? See that? This scepter is the rod of a king. It symbolizes the king's power, the king's authority. Jacob was prophetically announcing that through Judah, through his tribe, would be this king, this powerful king, this redeemer king, who would be known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's so many references to that through the Old Testament, references of the the coming of God's kingdom into this world. The, the, the coming king who would come and accomplish and, and usher in the kingdom. What's a kingdom? The, a kingdom is the realm in which a king rules. That's what makes a kingdom, is a king. We, we understand kingdoms, though, in geographical terms, don't we? Political boundaries. There's maybe a war, and it pushes that boundary out, expands his kingdom. It's the realm in which a king resides, But in biblical terms, God's kingdom, it's not necessarily an area with geographical boundaries and borders in which He rules. In biblical terms, the kingdom of God, it's not about a place where God rules. Rather, it's about the kingdom of God is the place where God saves. It's not about a place where God rules necessarily. It's about preeminently the place where God saves. You see, the kingdom of God is the realm of the redeemed. you ever thought of it that way? It's the realm of redeemed. It's the society for those who have experienced salvation of the king. And what we see from the beginning of Luke's ministry is, Jesus is uh, Luke is showing us that Jesus is this king. He, he's, he's come with all authority, with all power. He's, a, he's anointed to be the king of the kingdom. He's come to proclaim the good news of the arrival of this kingdom, the breaking in of this kingdom. And this kingdom, it's not a physical one yet, with borders, and, and, and it's the realm of the redeemed. It's for those who heed to his good news. It's those who receive his salvation. The, the kingdom is those who place their faith in the work of this king, in the power and the authority of this king. What you see, Jesus, he's, he's establishing God's earthly kingdom. It's how we understand the church, it's what the church is. The church is the assembly of the redeemed. It's, it's the assembly of those who come together, the ones who worship the true king. The church, we don't have physical boundaries, do we? Political borders, it's this, but it's this outpost of the kingdom of God here on earth. That's what all the true churches around the, the world are. They're, they're embassies of God's kingdom here on earth. And we're waiting on our king to return, and he will return. He'll permanently dispel darkness and the powers of evil. He's going to renew the physical dwelling place of God with man. Luke's introducing us to Jesus as the king with all power and all authority. That's what we begin to glimpse in this section. What we see is this King Jesus, his authority and his power in three areas. First, he has authority in his, in his teaching, unbelievable authority in his teaching. He has authority over demons, over the demonic dark realm. He has authority over physical existence. Luke introduces us to his, this power and authority in, in three scenes, and we'll just make our way through those three scenes and hopefully just be blown away by the authority and the power of, of Jesus and, and see who he is. Scene 1, verses 31 to 37. Jesus, he's, he's, he's back in Capernaum. Um, it's the Sabbath, so you know where he is. He's, he's in the synagogue. That's where he is on the Sabbath. And he's teaching again. That's what he said he's come to do. Um, unlike the scene, this is different from the scene where he's teaching in Nazareth. Because in Nazareth, Luke wants to focus on the content of the message, mostly what Jesus says. Here, he wants us to see the, the response of the message. And he tells us that the, the response of, of the message from these people is they are just astonished by it. Like their jaws are just on the floor. They're amazed, they're overwhelmed. And Luke tells us the reason they are astonished is because his words possessed authority. That, uh, that word authority, it's this Greek word exosia. It means power and authority, probably a mixture of the two, this powerful authority or this authoritative power. The people didn't realize it at the time, but they were, they were listening to sermons from this person who is the incarnation of truth. This is, a, this is, he himself had the power of life that actually attended the proclamation of his words. That's what the, the Gospel of John begins by telling us, isn't it? That Jesus is the, this word who became flesh. Of course, it makes sense that there's a lot of power, there's a lot of authority in his teaching. They've never experienced this before. When, when Jesus is going around teaching, he's, he's not like the other rabbis that would teach. The other rabbis were known for quoting a lot of other teachers. They're known for, like, presenting what others said was the truth. Jesus didn't do that at all. He wasn't even like the, the prophets in the Old Testament. They would, they would say things like, thus saith the Lord. They're, they're presenting to the people what God told them to say to the people. Jesus doesn't really do that either. Jesus speaks as if He is the Lord. He speaks with this this power and this authority that they've never experienced before. They're just astonished at this teaching because his word possessed authority. When Jesus spoke, there's this moment of crisis for everyone in the room. Like they feel the, the, the weight of his message. There's this powerful authority when this presence felt when Jesus was in a room. I know even a room this size, there's varying views on the royal family, like some of you love the royals, I know you do, some of you take it or leave it, but regardless of your views on the royal family, if Queen Elizabeth herself were to walk in, you'd feel the presence, the aura in the, in the room change, there'd be a different atmosphere in here, wouldn't there? Or if like the prime minister walked in, or the president of the United States, regardless of your political views, you'd feel a difference in the atmosphere, because those people, they possess a power and authority that you and I do not know. That's what the people are experiencing here, their, their, their power and authority, just because Jesus is speaking. He's a king who has authority in his words, and they've never experienced something like that. At verse 33, we see he also has a power over demons. Read from verse 33 again. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha! Ha! What have you done? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all, again, amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. (laughs) Compare this to last week, the the scene in Nazareth. The Nazarenes' problem was they were so familiar with Jesus that they didn't fully understand who he was. Like, they they just kind of spoke a half-truth about him. This is, isn't this Joseph's son? This is Jesus from Nazareth down the street. He's Mary and Joseph's son, which was true. They're not saying anything untrue about him, but they failed to see the full truth, that he was also God's son, that he was also the Messiah who had come. Compare that to this demon. He does not make that mistake. He fully knows who Jesus is. There's no doubt in his mind of Jesus' identity. And look at what he calls him. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. This is Joseph's son. This is the one from down the street. But he also calls him the Holy One of God. The the, the demon's not confused. He he doesn't just half see Jesus' identity. He knows who he is fully. Before we get to their interaction, don't miss the sad irony on display here. You run into the devil in the most surprising places, don't you? you? You don't expect to see a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, in this church gathering. Books and films, where do they teach us the, the evil spirits and the demons are? Dark forests, haunted houses, graveyards, not always so. Satan possesses this man and he takes him to church. You don't have to go farther than the assembly of God's people to find evidence of the enemy's work against God. Satan loves to oppose God's work right where the Lord is meant to be worshipped. That's why we pray for unity often in our church. Like Satan would love to break in and tear things apart, cause disunity. So we pray against that work. Lord, protect our unity. Look at what the demon cries out though. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? That's a common pattern that you see anytime Jesus... Interacts as an encounter with the demonic realm. There's always this protest where the demon complains that Jesus is going to destroy them. In Matthew chapter 8, 29, a demon poses the question in this way. He says, have you come to torment us before the time? Like the demons know their days are numbered. They know that there's a day coming when God will wipe them out completely. And they'll have their power removed, absolutely. Like this demon, he knows that Jesus has absolute power and authority over him. It's like being in a room with a lion or like a gorilla. Can you imagine that? We take our kids to the like Belfast Zoo uh, every now and again. Kids love it. But even in that setting, in like a zoo setting, I'm kind of terrified. When I'm like standing, I'm like watching a gorilla or like a lion on the other side of like a pane of glass, kind of back and forth. Like even in that setting, I'm like, all right, kids, we've seen enough. Let's, let's move along. Imagine being in a room with a lion. You'd know you stand no chance. Like that lion has, will have its way with you. Whether you live or die, it's not up to you at all. It's up to the lion. And that's exactly what this demon is experiencing here in Jesus' presence. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons, he has some theology. They, they know who Jesus is. They, they know the truth. That's what James tells us. Remember, James, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And that's exactly what you see happening here. Like their understanding of Jesus' identity is impeccable. The problem is not that they know the truth. Their problem is that they hate it. No one hates Jesus more than these demonic beings. When he appears, they tremble, they fear, they protest because of his power and his authority over them. Look at what Jesus does. He rebukes the demon. He commands him to come out of the man. And the demon has no option but to obey Jesus' command. He comes out of him. He throws him down. That's what Satan does with you once you're of no use to him anymore. And look at their response. Again, the people are just amazed. Like, what is this word? The the authority and the power of His very spoken word. Like, even Jesus, He's different than other exorcists at the time who would use magic or, or a potion or rituals. Jesus doesn't use any of those things. He doesn't need them. He just speaks to the demon and it obeys Him. This is a king with power and authority that they've never seen or even heard of. His, he commands demons with his very words. And this authority of those words mean they have no choice but to obey. Look at scene two, verses 38 to 41. It says, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So church is over. There's an eventful gathering. Um, I'm sure Jesus is, is spent. He's, he's hungry, he's probably tired, He's most likely staying at, at Peter's house here. So they go back to, to Simon Peter's house. And Luke tells us that Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. Uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel, they include this wee story as well. But what's interesting is, is they only say she had a fever. Luke, the physician, he's qualified to give us more details. And he's telling us, she, it's not like this woman is is under the weather. She says she has a high fever. She has a great fever. She's seriously ill. A high fever in those days could be fatal. And so Jesus being there with his power and his authority that they've just seen on display, they appeal to him to help her. Verse 39 says, And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. It's a pretty awesome sentence, isn't it? There's a lot you can pull out of that, but firstly just notice what Jesus does. He says he he stood over her. That word stood, it literally means to to approach, to, to come near to her. That's what Jesus does. He he draws near He gets close. He does, like we're familiar with fevers, aren't we? Like what do we do when someone has a fever? Stay away. Social distance. I'm not, please don't say we shouldn't be following that that advice in a global pandemic, but just see what Jesus does. See his heart. He he comes near to her. He approaches her. He stands over her because that's the king that he is. It's the kind of king that he is. He has all power. He has all authority. But He doesn't stay far off. He's not a lofty king who we worship from afar. He enters into our sickness, into our darkness, into our dirtiness, and He gets close. He's not afraid of her fever. He's not afraid of of her sickness. He gets beside her. Look at what He does. He rebukes the fever. It's the only instance that we see of Jesus speaking to a disease, we see Him speaking to weather and waves, they obey, but here He's speaking, He's rebuking germs. He's, he's, rebuking, an Ill, not, he's rebuking the symptoms of an illness. Fe, fevers don't have ears to hear, they don't have a mind or a will, but He rebukes it and this unhearing, unthinking thing obeys Him. Like What power? What authority? And then what happens? Jesus doesn't make her like on the road to recovery. He doesn't say, take these two pills and call me in the morning. He he doesn't even say, take a a second. She doesn't need a minute to gather herself. She doesn't need a a bit of time to rest and and gain her composure. He immediately and completely heals her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Irrefutable proof that Simon's mother-in-law was Northern Irish. First Irish person in the Bible, like as soon as she's ready, make sure everyone has a cup of tea. Have you been offered a cup of tea? <laughs> what, what power and authority he has. Verse 40, now the sun was setting. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases, not just, not just fevers now, various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And more demons came out of many people crying, You are the Son of God, and he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. The sun's setting, it's getting late. It's the end of a long day of serving for Jesus. I'm sure he's just knackered. I know a little bit of what that end of a Sunday tiredness feels like preaching, ministering to people, never exercised any demons, never healed any fevers instantaneously. But I can only imagine Jesus is tired at this point. But these rumors have begun to spread of his power and his authority. And now there's this long line of people outside Simon's house. All who had any who were sick with various diseases were brought to Jesus. And what does he do? He lays his hands on every one of them and heals them. Don't blow past that verse too quickly. Like if I was Jesus and I had all power and authority and but I was knackered, I'd say let's do a group deal here. Yes. Like gather together, I love you all, I'm gonna heal you all, but I'll do it all at once. That's not what Jesus does. He sees to every one of them. He lays his hands on every single one of them. He's drawing near, he's doing it again, He's, he's physically touching them. You see, this is not any ordinary king. He's not afraid of getting dirty, he's not afraid of smelling like these people. Jesus is a king with all power, all authority, but he's a king of such compassion. He's so patient. He's so gentle and loving. What a king. Look at the last scene finally. Verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people have sought him. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues in Judea. Um, again, a lot we can pull out of that. You guys know me. I'm the, I, I talk a lot about the importance of abiding. Here's this picture of Jesus going out to the desolate place. It's an entire sermon. Um, even for Jesus. You see, the, for Jesus... With all of his power, with all of his authority, you see the importance of his being before his doing. That long day of pouring himself out, serving others, with no lack of power, no lack of authority. He never runs out of power, but still he needs, he needs to go be with his father. He, he seeks out stillness and, and solitude. I'm not going to go too, too much more than that. I, I want to. But what I want us to see is the similarities. And the differences of the end of that Nazareth scene that we looked at last week and the end of this Capernaum scene, because both end similarly, like both end with Jesus departing. But do you see the difference in the people, though? He was rejected in Nazareth, they drove him out of town. Capernaum, they're begging him to stay. Luke says they would have kept him from staying. That word kept means to restrain, like hold back, suppress. But in both scenarios, he departs, which seems crazy, doesn't it? Like things are going so well. Like people are being healed. People are excited. This is what any ministry leader would want for their ministry. But he decides it's time to go. It's obvious why he leaves Nazareth. They reject him. His departure is devastating in that scene. Capernaum, though, I don't know. I'm I'm hesitant to assign them motives. Some scholars would say that kind of warn against the dangers of, of wanting Jesus simply because of what he can do for you, that's true, that's a, that's a good warning. Jesus isn't your monkey, he's not a vending machine, he's the king. But I don't know if that's their motives or not. I don't know. I mean, if I was in their shoes, if Jesus was here today and he was healing and preaching, we'd be begging him to stay too, wouldn't we? It's not the point, I don't think. The, the point Luke wants us to see is what Jesus says to them. In verse 43, I think he gently would tell them, I got to go. Like I must go and preach the kingdom of God, these good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. That's why I was sent. That's my purpose. Why does he have to go? Because there's more people who need to be brought into the kingdom. There's more people to hear the good news. Luke wants us to see Jesus' heart here. His heart is to seek and save the lost. That's his heart. That's always what's in his heart. It's why he's come. It's why his father sent him. Jesus is on a mission. He's he's here to establish and proclaim God's kingdom on earth, and there's more people to be brought into that kingdom. See his heart. Friends, I want you to see this morning who Jesus is as your king. I want you to see the power and the authority that this king has, but I also want you to see his compassion, his gentleness, kindness. He's, He's truly unlike any other king. Here's the application. If Jesus does have authority and power over absolutely everything, then not only do we owe him our obedience and submission, but we can also completely trust his salvation promises. If Jesus does have authority and power over absolutely everything, not only do we owe him our submission and obedience, but we can absolutely, completely trust his salvation promises. Let me put it this way. I want you to realize again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, I want you to realize that through the gospel, through Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, through what he's accomplished on your behalf on the cross, he's made a way for you to be part of God's family. That's the way for you to be made part of God's kingdom. He's invited you in to enjoy dwelling in God's presence again. That's what his kingdom is all about. That's the, the goal of his kingdom. If you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if that does describe you, then don't you realize who your king is? Realize again who your king is. This king of this kingdom that you are part of, he has all power and all authority, but he's also so compassionate. He's so patient and gentle and loving. He's so full of grace. That's your king. He's an amazing king. And if you know who your king is, it should change the way you live in this world. Like there there is a day coming when he will return as king, and he will usher in this kingdom forever and ever. He will wipe away all the darkness. Those will be things of the past. We'll live in perfect unity with him again, but until that day comes, what's your life look like? That day is coming, but in the meantime, you are part of this embassy of this kingdom, albeit in enemy-occupied territory for the time being, but how does having him as your king change the way you live? Are you living as a confident citizen of this everlasting kingdom? Having Jesus should and and will affect the way you live. You should live differently now. You should love differently now. You should serve differently now. You should have a different set of priorities now. Because the citizens of this kingdom, they're meant to represent the king. Paul calls us ambassadors of Christ. We're meant to be like Jesus. What's that look like in your life? How are you doing that? Are you showing the compassion that Jesus showed to you? If the, like if the king, with all his power and authority, is willing to stoop low, if he was willing to, to serve rather than be served, does that describe you as well, shouldn't it? If he was willing to live an uncomfortable life with a different set of values than the rest of the world, laying his life down for his friends, shouldn't we as well? See, Jesus, he's not a king who asks us to do anything that he wouldn't do first, and that's what we see him do all through the gospel, to change the way you live. And listen, have the confidence, have the boldness of Having a king with all power and authority, a king who will one day return and usher in this everlasting kingdom. Um, And listen, if you've never been part of this kingdom, today that can change for you. The, the, The same good news that Jesus was proclaiming here, it's the same good news that we proclaim today. And Jesus' message is the exact same for you today. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. May today be the day of salvation for you Today will be the day that Jesus welcomes you into his everlasting kingdom. Stand with me and let's pray.